Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's October 9th, 2019, um, and we are in the midst of busy season. Next week, we will have uh, Dr. Kathy Fisher will uh, share perspectives on integrated complex care from classroom to ICU. Uh, we have, as mentioned on the slides, a, a story slam from the Dartmouth-Hitchcock residents at the Hotel Coolidge on Sunday night. This Sunday night at 6 p.m., free admission with tickets, uh, organized by our own Sevdi uh, Felek. So hopefully folks might be able to make that on this busy Columbus Day weekend. This afternoon at noon is a special combined conference between the ER residents and the pediatric, pediatric residents uh, on recognizing trafficking. And at 2 o'clock on the sixth floor, we will be celebrating our a milestone Dartmouth-Hitchcock Service Club honorees uh, with um, treats and cake in the corner of the ambulatory clinic waiting room. So hopefully some can join us. I was remiss uh, last time when I recognized some 25-year recognees, including Amy Moynihan I mentioned. Uh, I was unaware that actually Dr. Norm Berman is at his 26th year, and we missed his 25-year recognition last year. So we'll recognize Norm and the Given that it's a neonatal grand rounds, I also am reminded that the neonatology has uh, Deb Van Loon at 25 years as a nurse and Katie Driscoll at 35 years as a nurse. And, and Dion, you're going to have to remind me who's at 40 years because I keep seeing it on the board. 40, you're at 43, but someone just joined you in the 40-year club. Um, Louise Dunf. So we are... Um, we are blessed with many um, honorees, none who are in the room at this point, but but come on up this afternoon if you can. We're also leading up, as you know, to the Chad Hero, which is now just 11 days away. Um, we are doing very well when it comes to fundraising, but but the, the crowd's a little thinner than other years. So I, I urge you to ask two friends to come run, walk, or participate in, in any other venue. We always want to have a great turnout for the, for the event and for the participation. No one needs to do a half marathon. Don't worry, Dr. House, 5K is fine. And, um, and Sean won't still be around, I'm afraid, to participate. But it's always exciting uh, to get to the main attraction, uh, to welcome back uh, one of our own, back home to where we trained them from. Dr. Sean O'Dell is our Grand Round speakers today, born in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he joined us here in Dartmouth after his bachelor's degree at Brigham, Brigham, Brigham Young University in Microbiology in Russian, where he's actually been recognized as a distinguished Russian alumnus from that institution, medical degree at University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, and Global Health Fellowship, actually, uh, before joining us here in residency. He subsequently did his fellowship in neonatal perinatal medicine at Seattle Children's Hospital, University of Washington's program, where he was also a research fellow at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Uh, he returned home to his native, uh, real native Utah in 2015, where he has been since. Uh, rising to the role of medical director of the NICU at the American Fork Hospital in American Fork, Utah, and is now the Rural Newborn Services Regional Director for Intermountain Healthcare. And during his time here, he was uh, he achieved one of our highest honors, receiving the Richard Waters Art of the Efficient Art of the Physician Award as a graduating senior resident. And he is presenting a talk today, caring for the world's most vulnerable patients, that he also presented in. Ekaterinburg, Russia, at an international conference. Um, and so, Sean, welcome home. 
Can you hear me? There you go. Hello. Oh, there we go. Um, I, I appreciate that introduction. I generally really enjoy speaking, and I'm finding, you know, being amongst uh, so many friends, so many people that taught me and played such an important role, I feel like, in the many years that preceded this, this is somewhat daunting. Um, <laughs> so I, I am glad to be here. As Dr. Loud said, this, this feels like coming home. This is, this is a real treat. I, I mentioned, or uh, it's been alluded to, my topic will be caring for babies globally. I see so many here that have been a part of that, Dr. Little and others. And that again, this is in uh, this context, uh, a real, a real uh, treat for me. My objectives are pretty straightforward. So we'll talk about the impact that newborn disease has, not only on the health of babies, not only on the health of children, but on the health of uh, the whole world uh, health landscape. We'll talk about what we know about the babies who are at risk. And then finally, there are several proven interventions that improve neonatal health, and we'll get to those in the end of this. Now, I have how much time left? I'm looking for a clock, 45 minutes probably or, or thereabouts. So we'll answer a lot of questions today. Fortunately, we won't get, at, get to everything. But, you know, if you came to this meeting hoping for some clarity on world politics, <laughs> we probably won't get there. If, on the other hand, you, like me, awoke this morning and wondered, now, on the other hand, what, is, what does Dr. House look like in one of those gas station sombreros? <laughs> that is a question that we'll be able to answer today. I'm happy to send on copies of this to anyone who wants it. And I'll just I'll leave it up there for a few minutes. This is really the crux of my talk. I don't have anything else. Uh, <laughs> a couple of definitions to start with. So uh, I, I think everyone in, in the audience today knows these things, um, but it'll provide a baseline that we'll add upon as we go. So a neonate, obviously a baby in the first month of life. A stillbirth, a baby born with no signs of life. There are different definitions for this that depend on gestational age. The WHO and the CDC vary a little bit. For our discussion today, that's not important. Just a baby with no signs of life at the time of birth. Preterm birth, so a baby born less than 37 weeks uh, gestational age, and then uh, a neonatal death, as one would expect a death within the first 28 uh, days of life. So words are really great in describing some of these concepts. It's, it's helpful, it defines things, but sometimes it takes a little bit more than words in order to really uh, define a, a term or a topic. So excellence, Best defined photographically. <laughs> Residents, this is Dr. Tyler's poker face. If on rounds she's carrying cash with this look, don't bet anything. Save the wagers for a different day. And as I said before, it is just a privilege to be back. On those hard days in Utah, this is what I always remember the area being like. And I wonder again, what in the world we're doing in Utah when that place like this exists? So it is really nice to be here. My three years ended in 2012, and this is what I remember about those years. So the collegiality, the learning, et cetera, were, 
or second to none. I really considered those years as a resident here, uh, years that are sort of irreplaceable and, and again, second to none, that experience. I learned a lot as a resident here. A lot of those things are things that I expected to learn. Um, the, the Hemong topics, the critical care topics, the care for a well newborn even before going on to neonatology fellowships. And then there are a lot of things that I learned that were completely unexpected. I never, for instance, expected to learn what Dr. Kim would look like with a beard on. <laughs> I learned some good things in clinic, how to manage uh, an entire clinic, how to care for children of all varieties. But the gap providers and mustaches, again, not something I thought that I'd meet up with. And then I think probably all of you at this point uh, are thinking, oh, I, I hope that he doesn't have a picture of me in a beard. And you're in luck unless you're Dr. Whalen. <laughs> so as a part of residency, I had the opportunity as each of our residents uh, to talk about global or to, to have a grand rounds topic. And my topic of choice was this global neonatal health. And this was important uh, to me in a number of ways that I hope to kind of uh, describe as I go forward with this. So my topic was in May of 2012. And, uh, and I described the state of babies in the world and what the, the challenges facing neonatal health were at that time. And this was, again, seven years ago. Some of those trends continue today, unfortunately, and we'll talk a little bit more about them. But this topic was good for me in many ways. It drove the scholarly work, a lot of the publications that followed as a fellow. And I'll explain why. So this was a, a graph that I showed at the time of my own senior grand rounds. And I remember in sort of a terrified fashion sitting up here and trying to describe what this meant. But this concept displayed back then is one that's still the same now. So if you were to look at all the causes of death in children under the age of five, you'd find that there are many uh, entities that are expected. Pneumonia, diarrhea, got a little bit of HIV AIDS in there is the smaller wedge. But the biggest component of under five mortality in children is in the neonatal time frame, and not just a small portion. It turns out something like a third of deaths occur in that first month of life or in those first 28 days. This is both fascinating and daunting as I took on a fellowship then to care for neonates. This explicit numbers at that time, so in 2012, are listed here. So there were about three and a half million neonatal deaths per year at that time, or three per hundred live births. And that was double the number of deaths of any age due to HIV AIDS. So it got a lot of attention, HIV AIDS, that is to say. But there were as many deaths, more deaths actually, in the neonatal time period during, during that uh, explicit year. And so as I left for fellowship, uh, fascinated by these numbers, I wondered how I could possibly include this in the next few years of life. And it became, again, the focus of my scholarly work. And I worked, so as Dr. Loud said, I headed from here to Seattle Children's Hospital. And there was this Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which I hadn't heard of before. That's my own neonate in the back. My wife, Diane, is in the back corner, and we have an eight-month-old, so he's, he's a vocal guy. We'll probably hear more from him today at some point in time. 
The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation is, is likely known to many of you here. I had not heard of it before uh, starting in Seattle. But the idea uh, is that it provides uh, impartial evidence-based and evidence-based picture of health trends to inform all of us, so policymakers, researchers, funders, those in the care of patients uh, about how, where uh, our focus can best be spent to improve the health of the globe. It is supported by the uh, Gates Foundation and is the main statistical arm uh, in providing uh, a look at the health of the globe and how we're doing in those, in those regards. One of the main publications that I became a part of was not this one, it was the subsequent study, but this Global Burden of Disease Study is a comprehensive review, as written here, of many diseases and injuries and risks, anything that affects health for the entire globe. And in its own words, the idea was that in taking or displaying all these different types of uh, potential health concerns, it would allow us to answer questions such as the ones listed. This is in the primer to the last Global Burden of Disease study in 2017. Which diseases or injuries are most likely to cause death? How do different countries uh, differ in terms of their health performance? Where are our resources best spent? And as you can guess, this is a, not only a, uh, an interesting subject, but a huge one as you try to look at the different data points, not only geographically, but by health condition. To back up my enthusiasm, I found these numbers as a new fellow, and I've updated them to reflect the time period now. But if you're to look at the top causes of early death and disability, number one would be ischemic heart disease. That's true now-ish. That was true 10 years ago, too. But neonatal complications come onto the picture very highly. So preterm birth complications is the number four cause of early death and disability, or was in 2007. It still remains a top five cause, even now. And again, that's only one of several neonatal conditions. To expand the list a little bit, if you look at the top 20 causes, so preterm birth, as mentioned, represents very highly in those regards. Neonatal encephalopathy, or asphyxia, at the time of birth is also up there as a top 10 cause. And then I don't like this term, other neonatal. This talks mostly about uh, infection. So both sepsis and pneumonia play most prominently into this condition. But the point being, even without looking at the exact terms, neonatal health on the landscape of global health plays an enormous, enormous role. You don't get good health uh, for the globe without addressing the babies, even in that narrow window of time in the neonatal uh, time frame the first 28 days like we talked about at the beginning. So that graph, that pie chart that I showed early on where a big portion of deaths in children was taken up by neonatal causes continues to expand to some extent. And I wanted to point out two things with an updated pie chart. The first is that whereas when I gave grand rounds seven years ago, roughly a third of the pie was taken up by neonatal conditions, now it's approaching a half. We've made some strides in areas of childhood health, less so with neonatal health than, than we wish. And I'm gonna talk about that in more detail in a few slides. The other thing I wanted to point out are the big three, so we know what, what babies are dying of. Prematurity is the big one. Asphyxia is also largely represented here, or neonatal encephalopathy, pretending, or 
depending on, on what you like to refer to it as. And then infections in babies, so sepsis and pneumonia is the, is the third. Combining those three conditions, you'd have about 80% of neonatal death represented, and adding congenital anomalies adds another 10%. So we know what babies are dying from in this state of being in a very sensitive period of life. So with those numbers in mind, I was a part of two or of the Global Burden of Disease study that came out in 2013. It was a triple issue in the Lancet, and we looked at both mortality amongst all the, the age groups and all the different countries of the world, and we looked at morbidity. And these were really new numbers that I'll get into in a minute in terms of how they related to neonates. We found some interesting things. So the rates of neonatal death were certainly decreasing. And I've listed those up there. Between 1990 and 2013, the numbers fell not quite in half, but close to it. Fewer babies were dying at the time that we started the study than even just 25-ish years before. And while those are certainly, certainly numbers to be celebrated, I think we all appreciate the fact that there were fewer babies passing away, we found that this hid some very hard truths. And one of those was this. So uh, fewer babies dying, but more with disability. So the amount of disability between 1990 and 2013 almost doubled for all neonatal conditions. This was true in every one of the neonatal conditions we looked at. So for infections, for uh, prematurity, for asphyxia, but it's most prominently seen in preterm births. And you can see again that the amount doubled. The, Metric itself isn't that important. YLD stands for years of life with uh, disability or loss to disability. Um, but I think the numbers are pretty clear here uh, that we had a lot more disability worldwide, even as we watched the amount of mortality drop and give some focus to the plight of the neonate. Another very hard truth is this one. So this is a global map on two separate points at two separate points in time, looking at the percentage of deaths in children under the age of five attributable to neonatal causes as listed at the top. And you can see that in 1990, there was a disproportionate number. And let me take a half step back. The warmer colors, the oranges, the yellows, the reds are where there's more, a greater percentage of death. The, the uh, cooler colors, so the dark blue, the light blue, et cetera, are where there are fewer deaths. So in 1990, a greater portion of deaths was occurring in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. 20 years later, despite this knowledge, the situation had worsened. So we had seen improvements, certainly. There were fewer babies dying, but those deaths, uh, the, the, the uh, decrease in number of deaths were more in the uh, higher uh, income countries, the Western world, less so in those areas that were already at high risk, again, like Sub-Saharan Africa, like South Asia. So there were successes, but again, not in the, not in the high uh, sort of targeted areas, uh, the areas where more babies were dying uh, comparatively. This graph says the same thing. It's a little busy for my taste, but what I want to sort of uh, the takeaway to be is that we saw improvement. The, the lighter colors represent the amount of neonatal death over time, the light blue, the light gray, and they're separated out by income. So you can see that there was improvement, but most of that improvement was happening more in high-income countries, far less in the lower and even in the middle-income countries. 
than one might wish. And finally, to describe one more metric, so the idea uh, in the Global Burden of Disease Study was to define or to look at, to compare all causes of health concern, so not just death, but the effect of the disability has had as well and has as well on the global health picture. There's a single metric that we utilize, this disability-adjusted life year. No one has to remember any of this. Just know that the, the DALIs measure both disability and death in one number and provide kind of a comparative background to look at different causes. And so although the number of deaths in neonates was decreasing, the overall health concern was not necessarily going down when you took into account the amount of disability now present. So looking at one neonatal condition, neonatal encephalopathy, there were about 50.1 million years of life lost in the 2010 study. This was as much as the numbers for tuberculosis, probably a much more publicized health concern amongst us global, all of us here that take care of different patients. About twice as much, twice as much for just one neonatal condition and then that for asthma. Same comparison to neonatal disorders. And neonatal encephalopathy, again, asphyxia, caused as much disease burden or a good portion of it as HIV and AIDS, about 60% uh, as much. Point being that these, uh, that, that the neonatal conditions, although not necessarily publicized as well, were certainly very prominent on the world stage. I mentioned this before, but I wanted to take a couple more slides to describe it. We were seeing reductions in, in the amount of death for neonates, but that reduction, it turns out, was happening at a slower rate than other similar conditions or conditions that some might tie uh, into neonates. We were reducing uh, maternal mortality, for instance, at a rate of about 4% per year. We were reducing deaths in children by about 3.5% per year. Neonatal mortality was about half that in terms of its reduction compared to maternal mortality and stillbirths even less than that. This is a graph that I've used in a number of these talks, but I think it uh, administers very effectively the same point. So uh, the blue, uh, dark blue sloping line represents mortality in children uh, under the age of five. And you can see nicely that it's dropping off. This is all comers, all children. Uh, the vertical bar graphs at the bottom represent neonatal deaths, and what I hope is apparent is that those vertical bars are approaching ever more closely the sloping amount of childhood deaths is taking up an ever-increasing portion uh, of child deaths as we go forward in time. As an illustration of this, the Millennium Development Goals were created in the year, I think uh, they were signed in the year 2000. Leaders from many countries got together and set up eight goals in order to improve the health of the globe. One of those, near and dear to all of us here today, was goal four, to reduce by two-thirds the rate of mortality in children under the age of five. And the goal was to do that in, uh, by the year 2015. Unfortunately, Progress towards that goal was much slower than would have, would have been expected, such that by 2015, at the rate we were going, the, the goal uh, reduction wouldn't have occurred until 2045. And for the highest risk countries, it would have been many years after that, more like 2115, so 70 years into the future, even of that later 
time frame. The reasons were multifocal, at least in terms of what the literature told us. But even more than the reasons I listed at first was the slow progress in redu reducing neonatal mortality. And again, this graph comes to mind when thinking about it. We just weren't making as much progress as we needed to in terms of reducing neonatal mortality, in terms of improving neonatal health as we needed to to meet that goal. So it plays a prominent role in neonatal health on the landscape of global health in its entirety. But it's facts like le these that led to statements such as this. This is from a Lancet article. Investment and large-scale implementation in neonatal health have been disappointingly small, especially in view of the size of the burden and the potential for rapid change. Moreover, stillbirths remain invisible on the global health agenda. Now, this is a very academic way of, of saying that we're not pumping enough resources into improving neonatal care. Uh, it's, it's pretty politically correct. To switch gears, this is a statement by Gary Darmstadt. It's our goal that the babies who count for nothing get the same attention as overweight adult men. <laughs> I wish he had chosen a different demographic, but nonetheless, I think that's a telling statement uh, and, and truthful, at least in terms of looking at improvement in babies compared to other uh, demographic groups. Again, that's my own neonate in the back. That's not someone being rude. Actually, he is being rude, but it's okay. He's, he's related. Uh, so, with this in mind, we have made good strides, and I don't mean this to be a lecture of doom and gloom, more of one in, in terms of education of where we stand uh, with improving health of neonates. So this was a more recent goal to improve the health of children. And notice how now they're including in the verbiage terminology about newborns. So to end preventable deaths of newborns and children under the age of five. So I think the word is getting out. Uh, we've become a little more visible in terms of an idea of what we need to do to take care of babies. To come full circle, the numbers that I showed at the very beginning when I gave grand rounds um, seven years ago as a senior resident have now evolved to the numbers up here. So whereas there were three and a half million deaths per year before, there are now about two and a half million deaths, many per day. Strikingly, about 80% of those deaths are occurring in the first week of life, and many of those in the first day of life. Similarly to before, there are about as many stillbirth deaths as there are deaths after, uh, after the day of birth. But, but to draw attention to one more striking uh, concept about deaths in neonates, again, they're happening when they happen. So we know where they're happening, right? I showed it on the map. We also know when they're happening. I think my pointer's running out, but there you go. Uh, they're, they're happening very early on. This graph shows the same concept. So on the x-axis, you can see the day of life. On the y-axis, the daily risk of death. And you can say, see that day of life zero is the most dangerous day of your life. So congratulations to everyone here. You made it. Day of life number one is so the day after you're born, the second most dangerous day and on down the line. But at getting babies through this initial time frame improves dramatically the state of childhood health and adult health uh, in many ways. Uh, and as we move on to discussing interventions, my point in showing this slide is if focus on this earlier time period uh, really goes a long ways in terms of improving health of babies. I see this on my screen, but not on yours up there. There it is. 
And maybe it's because the, the uh, type is a little on the small side. So there have been a number of articles that look at interventions or that have accumulated interventions that have been improved, that have been proven to improve the health of neonates uh, worldwide. And, and they're broken down by uh, prenatal interventions, perinatal inter interventions at the time of birth, and then postnatal interventions as well. I'll talk about them in that order also. So if we were to employ these interventions, we go a long ways towards improving neonatal health. And they're simple things, as you can see, like family planning, like immunizations, uh, like uh, education even, and like uh, substance abuse and, and, uh, and mental health sorts of issues. Moving along to uh, some of the perinatal interventions that have, been, that have actually been proven, Attendance by a skilled birth attendant improves neonatal care. Again, that probably stands to reason, but isn't true everywhere in the world. Hygienic care at birth, so clean water, right, which is easier said than done in many areas. Emergency obstetric care. Uh, management of preterm labor antibiotics. Again, simple things that we know about here, but if scaled up, would mean a lot for the state of neonatal health. And finally, the area as care providers here that we're most integrally involved with the care of the neonate after the time of birth, so cord clamping and cord care, and all of us, I think, have a horror story. We've heard about some of the things people put on cords, uh, hypothermia or prevention of it, nutrition, vitamin K for the small and the sick neonate, resuscitation, ones that are going to be problematic moving forward, goes a long way. It's just those resuscitation principles, and I guess, again, we'll get back to that treating infections and recognizing them early on, et cetera. Summarily, there are some very simple things we can do at each of the different time points uh, that wouldn't require, that are, that are very doable. I think that's the point, that these aren't things that are outside the norm in a lot of areas. They just are things that require, in, in most cases, training, and hopefully not much more than that. And we'll talk about that in more detail uh, in a few slides. Um, if the interventions listed were scaled up to a global level, you'd have decreased mortality in each one of the three main causes of neonatal death. You'd have decreased mortality due to uh, prematurity by about 58%, decreased uh, mortality related to asphyxia by about 80%, and about the same improvement uh, related to infection. The capstone argument of the article where these were published in The Lancet said the following, if you were to increase coverage uh, and quality of preconception, antenatal, intrapartum, and postnatal interventions by 2025, you divert 71% of neonatal deaths, many stillbirths, 33%, and about half of maternal deaths every year. So pretty striking numbers. Now, numbers uh, are one thing. I think all of us learn differently with numbers. But sometimes it takes just a clinical case to kind of drive the point home. And so I wanted to go through one of those right now. So a young physician in the United States, uh, or in pick any Western country, any developed country, decides to expand his family. These are pictures drawn at random. It's impressive facial hair here, though. I mean, striking. Meanwhile, his twin... <laughs> living in sub-Saharan Africa makes the same decision. I would note that not every nephrologist can grow a kidney-shaped beard. This is, I, I, I defy any of you to find another one so dedicated to their art as Dr. Weinstein. 
and I, I can send on a copy of this picture to any of you. It's, it's magical. Um, but comparing the two, the twin living in a uh, developed country versus a developing country, the likelihood that a skilled attendant will attend the delivery is greater than 99% for the twin living in a developed country versus a third or a quarter even in some places of those in a developing country. The same trend is true for a birth that takes place uh, in a health facility. So comparing a developed country to a developing country, you're much, much more likely to be able to deliver in a hospital or health facility of some variety living in a developed country. What this calculates out to be then is that the risk of dying is much, much higher in developing countries for all the main causes uh, of neonatal disease burden. 11-fold higher for infectious causes, eight higher for asphyxia, three-fold higher for causes related to prematurity. So a lot higher risk uh, of, of your baby dying from any of those big three in a developing country uh, without the scale up of the interventions that we talked about. This is one of the great inequities of the world. The place you're born decides to, much, to a great extent the success, the health success, especially over the short term for babies. And for those of, uh, of us, which is probably everyone in this room who have watched a baby come into the, the, uh, into the world, this takes on particular meaning. Now, there have been successes in low-income countries. Listed here are 13 low-income countries that have reduced neonatal mortality by at least 25% over the last 10 years. And surprising ones in my mind, Bangladesh, Nepal, Tanzania. I think we have a robust program in Tanzania from here, don't we? And so there have been countries that have uh, seen vast improvements in terms of uh, helping out with the health of neonates. And the question then is, what are they doing and how are they doing it? So I've been talking for oh, half an hour plus and I've given a lot of statistics. At this point in time, I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit to some of the on-the-ground interventions that have already begun and even my, uh, my own firsthand uh, insights with those. This is a somewhat daunting task in light of, uh, you know, being in the audience with Dr. Little, per se, who only today he's still traveling extensively involved with the care of babies. Um, but I wanted to give some representative examples of how this plays out. And I'll start with the experiences that we had shortly after leaving here. There was a resident, Dr. Little, told me, you got to hook up with this group who's helping babies in a lot of different places. And so my, actually my second year of fellowship, I started going to Belarus. And our goal was to address that resuscitation concern. So amongst the postnatal things that we could address, Resuscitation, you'll remember, was represented prominently. And so we taught NRP, the baby providers in Belarus, and we did it every year from 2013 to 2018. There are six main provinces in Belarus, and each year we'd go to one of those. And so over, over the course of that time frame, we taught in each one of the birthing centers in each of those uh, provinces. So we started in the north in Vichevsk on the Russian border, and then we moved to the Polish border the next year. Gomel in 2015 is down on the Ukrainian border, and then we followed up with Rodna, I think is near Lithuania there, 
And in 2018, we completed things in the capital city of Minsk. And during those trainings, we teach about 100 uh, providers each year over those courses. So over the course of, of the six different trainings, we taught about 600 people. And the idea was that each of them would go back to their hospitals and conduct their own training for neonatal resuscitation in their own environment. We then had a neonatologist from Belarus call back after six months to see how many additional people had been taught following that training. So to look at indirectly how many people were taught by the, the programs we put on. And it turned out to be about a thousand individuals uh, per year ended up being taught after we went home. So somewhere around 6,000 total for the six years we were there. And again, canvassing, the idea was most of the country. So to the keen-eyed observer, many of you will say, but Belarus doesn't fall in those high-risk areas. It probably has a few more resources in Eastern Europe than one might expect in Sub-Saharan Africa or in India or some of those other places that were the warmer, the orange, the red colors on the graph. So there are other programs that are a little bit simpler or a little bit more manageable in some of those lower resource settings. The most famous of which is helping babies breathe. Dr. Little, uh, instrumental in getting that started. And many of these courses, Helping Babies Breathe, and the ones we'll talk about uh, additionally that are related to that, are based on very simple algorithms that you could do most places in the world, even without the benefit of a ventilator, of epinephrine, uh, et cetera. And there was reason, there was good data behind this. So if you look at the numbers, or if even you go back today and read in the NRP book about resuscitation of babies, it turns out 10 to 15%, somewhere in that range, need some type of help at, the, uh, help at the time of birth. And of those that need help, 90 to 95% require just a bag and mask, just positive pressure ventilation. And this Helping Babies Breathe program uh, is up to that point in the NRP algorithm. It teaches just PPV. So we taught that in Tajikistan a couple of years running in 2017 and 2018. If you're a, a ge uh, geography novice like myself, Tajikistan is kind of the pinkish country. Ooh, I'm struggling with that. Oh, that's the wrong way. Uh, let's go back one. So it's located below Russia. Uh, directly below Kazakhstan. It shares a, a southern border with Afghanistan and then a little bit of the border with China, too. Notably, it's the poorest of the former Soviet republics, so it's 93% mountainous, and that limits to a large extent economically what the country could do. So it was the perfect place to teach helping babies breathe. And again, we taught it in the capital in 2017 and then in the southern area and the following year up in the north of Tajikistan. And in a similar way, the idea was that providers who took part in these courses would then go out to their own hospitals uh, and provide that training for people who weren't at the meeting. These are a couple of pictures of some of the uh, clinical scenarios that played itself out there. This is a grandmother, actually, of that baby. So Helping Babies Breathe is one such program that seeks to intervene in some of those high-risk areas. Another one is Helping Mothers Survive. So looking at the maternal side of the fence, the idea behind this program was the same. It's a very simple algorithm, and it's supposed to address some of the leading causes of maternal death, as you can read here, including uh, bleeding after birth and preeclampsia. We taught that in Ghana in 2017. 
I thought the the training scenario was really striking. So this mother had come from several hours away in order to attend the training. She had her own toddler on his back. He was a lot quieter even than my own in the back. He would sit here with his mom each day in the sling, or when he got tired, he'd just sit on the side. But but it was a well-received course. During that same time frame in Ghana, we also taught another one of these courses. So whereas HBB teaches about the first few minutes of life, resuscitation, but really stops at that point, there are two courses, essential care for small babies and then essential care for every baby that look at what to do after that. Things like keeping babies warm, like nutrition, uh, like antibiotics, like identifying high-risk babies. And we taught that course or this course for small babies during that same trip. The babies pictured there are not triplets. They didn't have enough warmers, so they're all small babies that bunked together. They're friends for life there. Uh, we taught again. I speak Russian. I lived there for a little while. And so many of these courses you'll notice are in Russian-speaking countries. So again, resuscitation, both of the simple variety and of the more complicated variety with NRP that we learn here. Uh, and we did so in 2018. This is a, in an area of Siberia. And this is that last course that I mentioned. So we taught uh, providers about taking care of small babies. There's also a course that very well documents how to take care of your run-of-the-mill baby and the warning signs to look for, things that we take for granted in our clinics and in our hospitals now that aren't necessarily things that are done very well in low-resource settings. And we taught that course this year in the Ukraine along with the resuscitation course as well. So I'm drawing close to the end here. I wanted to mention just one other experience because it uh, was along with uh, another Dartmouth tie-in. So for those of you that remember Heather Robertson, it looks like from the nods, quite a few of you do. She was the chief resident my third year of residency and then uh, was here as a resident the three years prior to that. She had been working at a hospital in Luang Prabang, Laos, in 2019 and contacted me earlier in the year to say that they had a NICU there that required staffing. It was relatively new, and, and did I have any time to come over and work there? So this summer, we went over for a period of five weeks, and rather than teaching, we're really on the ground seeing how uh, clinical scenarios play themselves out in a low-resource setting. And it's a fascinating scenario. One of the reasons I pictured this baby here with the mom's permission is that he was born with a congenital chylothorax. And we didn't have at our disposal many of the things that we'd utilize here. So we didn't have octreotide, we didn't have chest tubes, that we'd punch in a little angiocath uh, regularly and drain off the fluid that accumulated. But again, I was struck by the fact that in these low resource settings, some of the things we take for granted uh, are very difficult to come by. He ended up going home uh, and, and doing well. He, on his return visit uh, recently, he still looked good, was breathing easily, was growing, etc. So I'll finish up there. There are a lot of future directions to, to go by from this. Again, uh, looking at the map and looking at the numbers that are generated, we have a lot to learn just from our neighbors. So why does Thailand, why does Vietnam do so much better than Laos, pictured as the yellow sliver there in Southeast Asia? Why, uh, why does India, to some extent, and Afghanistan do so much better than Pakistan? 
And beyond the interventions that we know about, and those that I mentioned that have been uh, nicely versed in publications, how do we spread that data to neighboring countries? And I think that's sort of the wave of the future is, is sharing that information uh, where uh, regionally applicable uh, to each of its neighbors. In conclusion, so, you know, if you can take anything from, the, from, from what I've said today, I've tried to underscore a few things. Even though there have been improvements in neonatal health, they remain a very vulnerable group and a high-risk group uh, and one that deserves attention. Uh, we know where babies are dying, what they're dying from. Uh, we know when they're dying. And so for, for the last point there, we also know which solutions as a re result of that would improve the care of babies, of neonates uh, worldwide. And those efforts are ongoing and would be best to be extended in order to address those numbers and the, and the quality of care of our most vulnerable patients. I'll end there. I found this much nicer picture of Dr. Tyler <laughs> and of Dr. Weinstein for that matter. Not every uh, rotation you get a shirt with kidneys on it. This was a, this was a real sentinel experience for me as a, as a resident, one that I think uh, back on a lot. Any questions, though, that I can answer about anything we've discussed today? Dr. Ozicki, yeah. You can uh, introduce certain techniques into various communities in the neonatal area. I've always been interested in what are the multiplier effects? What happens with the adults who have disease, the adolescents who have disease? Do they benefit from a spinoff of better educated providers in the neonatal area? Because that would make it even more saleable to funding agencies, I would think. Yeah. It's a great question. We know even from our experience in the United States that babies uh, who have complications who are addressed early require help further on. And, and, you know, taking part in that care early means that they'll have fewer complications going forward. But it is a reciprocal effect. Treating moms, the so moms who are healthy, mean healthier babies and vice versa. And so I think that any time you address and starting out with kind of that bottom of the pyramid with neonates, of which we have many who are sick, certainly does have, you know, something of an extension going forward for the health of an entire community. Um, more of the actual providers of care. Somebody oh, interesting. Somebody to, to resuscitate a neonate might be in a setting where an adult needs resuscitation, and they now can bring something to it. You know, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I've never seen any explicit literature, but it stands to reason that these, uh, these algorithms make sense even on Bigger kids and adults, chest compressions, moving blood round and round, getting oxygen in would certainly be, you know, something that would be beneficial for every age group. So that's nicely said. Again, I've not seen anything in the literature that describes that. As usual, we're often lacking in the points we sometimes care about, but, but I think that's an important point. I think it's safe to say that every community uh, is, you know, benefited by the care of those babies in many ways. My guess is that's, that's one of them. George, have a point. Yeah, well done. This has uh, been great. I, I don't know, you got a, a special handle on, on Russia and stands, uh, which I think is uh, important. Uh, your special skills that you've developed over the years, which they can otherwise. Uh, a lot of us, you know, 
been involved in Africa, and, and uh, I think things are moving along in Asia. But I, I think, in particular, one message you can bring to all of us is, uh, is in the stands and in Russia. Tell me about your perception of uh, stillbirths. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's been uh, one of the major impacts and probably one of the things that's most dynamic. The, uh, the night that uh, Obama uh, was elected for his first term in office was the time of the first stillbirth WHO meeting. I think uh -huh. it was in uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's how, uh, how recent that has been. Uh, and I noticed in... You did a nice job of getting the stillbirth thing out there, but I'm not quite as comfortable about conclusions in the stillbirth arena. You're right, uh, yeah. Because uh, the definitions that you very carefully pointed out are kind of squishy. Yeah, they're discrepant. Uh, and the impact is in the golden minute, in the first right. minute. Uh, so what, what's, your, what's your read on the stillbirth, uh, what's going on in the stillbirth situation? You know, you... It, it's interesting. Stillbirths remain a big area of, we, we just don't know. I mean, even more so than, than babies, it's very difficult from a statistical standpoint to count stillbirths, right? right? To a large extent, we don't know where they're occurring and why. They could happen in these small rural communities and we may never know about them. So even uh, a good calculation of the number of stillbirths is much more difficult than for other conditions. And I think that's one of the points that we may be only hitting the tip of the iceberg with our concern for babies. When we look at neonates, there are a whole group of stillbirths out there that we have no idea. And, and there's not a lot of regularity in the medical community. As you underscored just a second ago, even defining stillbirth uh, deaths is difficult when you talk about it with large groups. Um, you brought up something else, too, I, I found fascinating. They, uh, those getting into the stand countries adjacent to Afghanistan and Pakistan, there are these hidden recesses of neonatal uh, health dysfunction, probably more than just neonatal health dysfunction, that are invisible to some extent to the world. We look at certain countries and we spend a lot of resources there. I had never heard of them before, and it turns out they're just as badly off or worse off than anywhere else. And I meant to imply that with the last slide. We have neighboring countries in a lot of areas that seem to be improving a lot. Uh, my hope is that regionally we start to share the wealth a little bit to some extent and pass on some of the lessons we've learned in Africa and other places to some of those lesser known uh, spots in general. Thanks for bringing those up, though, Dr. Love. Sean, that yeah. was fantastic. Let me just first say that November month was <laughs> <laughs> A lot of really ugly facial hair experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back to that, actually. Awesome, right? awesome um, is what you said. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Sounded like awesome. We'll just leave that out. <laughs> but as a global health uh, novice, um, you put up a lot of global health goals. Um, clearly, there are some low-cost interventions that can be done. See, it was not good. <laughs> The women of the group, we tried to keep up, we just couldn't. Um, but you put up some really relatively easy, low-cost interventions. And I'm wondering, from, from a global health policy standpoint, are there, is there a united front or funder or organization that is helping to promote these things? I hear that you've gone to the stands, to Laos, to a lot of different places, to Uganda, to do a little bit of work here or there. But is there a push from 
anybody worldwide to make these interventions more? Little by little, and that's one of the points of this talk, I think we're gaining some traction. Again, I think some of these interventions sound simpler on paper than in, in reality. So clean water, right? It sounds so simple, but how do you deliver clean water into a rural area of sub-Saharan Africa? It's much more difficult than it sounds like. But there are some global communities. GIZ from Germany seems to be present in a lot of the areas that we go, both in Africa and in the, in the uh, countries, the former Soviet provinces, those stand countries. Um, they, so they're, they're, they're out there. Uh, and my hope would be that as time carries on, with the benefit of, of better data, that, that that the ball now rolling continues to get bigger in terms of the number of resources that we're able to provide. And in terms of even a group taking on the, the bigger picture uh, of addressing more a global neonatal community rather than the pointed communities that you're talking about. I mean, it's a great point. HIV AIDS, I think we've taken on globally pretty well. We haven't necessarily done the same with neonates and that's hopefully forthcoming at some point in time, but it's well phrased. Dr. House. So I had a similar question. You mentioned a lot of different organizations and interventions that yeah. are doing work individually, and I wondered if there's a movement. Thanks <laughs> 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 uh, for that. A movement to a kind of be bringing those organizations into the same place at the same time and do that work in a little bit more coordinated way, and if there's any evidence that outcomes improve sort of more rapidly if those efforts are coordinated. Even efforts like helping babies breathe are just in their infancy in terms of looking at how it affects long-term. So hey, I use helping babies breathe as, as an example uh, because it's one that's been out there for a longer period of time. But in their infancy in terms of proving whether outcomes have improved over the last several years. Um, the, I mentioned a couple of these uh, different uh, groups that have gotten together to try to get policymakers to come to some agreement on just recognizing a goal for the entire globe for babies. So those things are happening, again, far down the road compared to some of the other things that we've done from a, a global health standpoint, but they are, but they are occurring. And, 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 you know, you hope that trend continues, but it is nice to see 189 countries getting together and signing something that includes the word newborn in the documentation of improving Neonatal health. I'm struck on the map by how unaffected South America is yeah. in neonatal death. So it makes me wonder if there's um, not only an educational emphasis, but maybe a cultural um, prioritizing of neonatal care. You mentioned India and Thailand as some other areas, but uh, South America is so resource limited and really impressive compared to an interesting point. What lessons do we have to learn from Africa? You'll notice, or from South America, you'll notice here that, that one of the best countries in South America is Chile. In the literature, they're well documented as having improved a lot the care of babies. And one of the secrets for them is they had an active transport system that could move babies between these higher care centers with more ease than some of their neighbors. Now, I don't know how that spread to the rest of the region, but it is considered one of history's greatest successes in terms of how they did with neonatal care. And again, it makes you wonder, how can we spread that regionalization to the rest of the world and learn from those successes? And probably gets back to a couple of these points made before uh, about getting people together in a more formal context to come up with some solutions that work uh, or would work other places. But, it, but you're right, it's striking how good South America looks compared to 
sub-Saharan Africa, even with, you know, what, what many of us would consider, you know, a predominantly lower income or middle income uh, makeup of countries there. Dr. Zegan, so. <laughs> uh, sorry, I couldn't make it last night. Um, I was just injured, like, uh, oftentimes we have good ideas and good programs. And yeah. Things that make sense from a Western medicine point of view. Really good point. Uh, that, that for whatever reason get rejected uh, culturally. Great point. The Ebola situation is a really good example. Yeah. Um, have you guys come across Yes. I am so glad you brought this up. This is a story that I've been wanting to tell for a long time, but it, you know, it was, it, I struggled to fit it into the number of slides that I had here. So in this Laos experience we had this summer, there was this epidemic of babies who came in malnourished. And the question was, why? What's going on? It turned out that there is this uh, cultural uh, uh, treatment of mothers, brand new mothers, where they're put on what's called a hot bed. So they lay on basically a bed frame and they put hot coals underneath for several days after, even weeks, up to a month after the delivery of a baby. At the same time, so while they're being, you know, dehydrated basically by their own making, they eat only boiled chicken and white rice. So they're getting very little nutritional value. And then, of course, the supply of breast milk is so poor that their babies come in malnourished. The... If, you know, when a baby comes in, it's already a different part of the story. It's almost too late at that point. And we had a number of babies die from that very condition. When we went out to the communities and had uh, teachings on this topic, it turned out that the cultural pressure from the mother-in-law, it's always the mother-in-law, there's you know, the, <laughs> the top of the feeding chain there in Laos, provided immense pressure on these young mothers to do what their grandmothers had done, et cetera, throughout time. And so you're right, as good as data is, sometimes fitting it into a cultural way of life is far more difficult. And that's just one example, I'm sure, and that's what you're implying of what we see in the entire world. It is far more difficult. Again, getting back to the treatment of cords and what people put on cords, whether it's cow manure or something else in some of these African countries, it does sound easier, I think, than it, than it actually is in reality sometimes. Well stated. Yeah. Cause I often think, Sean, I can think of at least three major lessons for our residents. <laughs> I think that to see that his Grand Rounds scholarly activity launched this scholarship in Fellowship and Beyond is something to look forward to. Um, I think that reintroducing our notion to the, the, the real leadership that we have in our department around global health, George Little created Helping Babies Breathe, and Amr had to step out, but you have real access to some leadership and global health experience. Yeah. And, um, and Sean led Movember, so if anyone... <laughs> that was philanthropic effort, and so we'll have to speak to him about how we could do that again. Philanthropic events, I'm sure there are some of us... I'm signing up for the Chad Hero. I'm sure there are some of us... Oh, after the Chad Hero, we're going to do something next. So, I'll be around, I think, in clinic and other places. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you.